and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre and I'm joined by my co-host Nathan. This week, in part two of our interview with Rasena Lutzik-Beher, we continue our discussion about her books and their focus on the experience of Ukrainians during World War II. Um, looking at your souvenirs from Kiev, you mentioned that, that the first two stories were in first person and then afterwards the rest of the book would be in third person. What made you choose that sort of style to be having the first two stories in first? So Souvenirs from Kiev um, has a little bit of a history of its own. And it's this, that when I was finished with that first account of my family's history, I apparently I had one more story in me and I was driving to Italy and all of a sudden this woman's voice came up and she was an embroiderer and she was in occupied Kiev. And like, all of these images just kind of flashed past my head. And the next thing I knew, I, I pulled over to the side of the road and I wrote, I think, 20 pages. And the story is essentially the same as when I, with that first draft, it just came out of me. And she was speaking directly to me. Um, there was, I, I, this is sometimes how it is. I, I feel like I channel voices through me. And Larissa was Larissa. There was no change. Um, the only thing I did was, you know, I, I cleaned up the technical parts. And when I submitted it to the Historical Novel Society for um, a short story contest, um, I had done very little, I had made very few changes to the actual structure of the story and what I wanted to say with it. And I got second prize. <laughs> First prize was given to exactly my mentor. I had, we, had, we had no idea that both of us had submitted stories to it, but my mentor won first prize and um, and I got the second prize and it was published in an anthology and that anthology ran for a limited period of time. And then we re the rights to the story were reverted back to the authors. And so I decided because I was publishing the books um, on South Tyrol and I knew that I wanted to, to tackle the Ukrainian stories again. Um, I thought, why not just put out a free story, short story for my readers and republished souvenirs from Kiev. And I started to put it together, you know, you have to slap a cover on it and everything else. And I thought, actually, if I'm doing this, I might as well just write. I felt cheap, you know, giving only one story away. So I went back to that first account that I had published for my family. And I pulled five additional gold nuggets. Um, and I said, I'm just going to rewrite them. And it was incredible. I was done in a month. Like I, I didn't even look at the drafts that I had written back then. I just knew the, the anecdotes. And all of a sudden, all of those characters that I couldn't get down before were speaking through me. And some were in first person. Others were in third person close. And super interesting for me was I was trying to tell my grandmother's story when they fled from Berlin to Munich. Um, and the, the whole collection I, I didn't plan this in the beginning, but I realized that's what was happening. The whole collection moves from east to west. So the first story begins in Kiev, then you have something in Lutsk, then you have something in Lviv, and it moves on outside of Ukraine as people are fleeing. So in chronological order, you're going from east to west. And by the time I reached the last story, which was my, my father's family's arrival to Neubauern's DP camp, the displaced person camp. Um, I was writing writing omniscient over my grandfather, 
And it was the first time where that story just flowed and I was in him and, and I'd never met my grandfather. He died before I was born, but it was so set. Yeah. And after I was finished with that, um, I thought there's one more in me again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I thought, I think I really want to write about my great aunt and my grand, my, my father had told me about my, my great aunt being a spy. She had helped the intelligentsia flee into the West. Um, and I thought I really want to tell Antonia's story or Antonina, sorry, Antonina's story. She's Antonia in the woman at the gates. So, um, what I did was I submitted souvenirs from Kiev, the collection of six stories to a contest for IPPY and got the silver medal for uh, military and war. And then I submitted that to my publisher and the editor called me and she said, do you have, are, have you ever thought about turning this into a novel? And I started laughing and I'm like, uh, yeah, 2005, I did write it as a novel supposedly. And I thought, I just don't, I don't even want to do that anymore. You know, I just, I just want to leave it. And I said, but I do have this one thing about my great aunt. And I told her she was a spy. She helped people across the thing. Her, the man that she loved was Austrian and he was shot on the border. And she goes, great, but he can't die. Let's do that one. <laughs> you know? And that was all I had to go on. So I had to go back to the pot um, and start picking out and plotting and figuring out um, which aspects and which, which parts of the stories I wanted to tell now. Um, and I fictionalized a lot of things based on other um, research that I had done on Ukraine in World War II, but the majority of the, of the experiences of my families are in this novel, but driven by fictionalized characters now. When I was reading, I believe it was the second story about um, Mihailo when he's coming back from Mikhailo, the yeah. German, yes, from the German hunt mm -hmm. into Kharkiv, I believe it was. Um, mm -hmm. And then he has this whole experience with the Ukrainian family that he meets there. And once he's shown the brutality of the German Reich, um, he goes on to leave. And mm -hmm. I presume he went to join Upa uh, in Western Ukraine. And that sort of reminded me of how my great grandparents were. So my great grandfather was a, I think a family of eight, and I think it was seven brothers and one sister. And mm -hmm. during the story, um, it's mentioned that Mihailo's cousin, um, is on the Russian side and he's on the German side. And this brought a lot of connection to how my family was because my family had, uh, members in Upa, they had, uh, members in the Soviet army. And then my Pradyuto was in the Polish army. So there was this mm -hmm. whole oh, one family just on three different armies, either fighting each other or fighting with each other in roundabout ways. And I, I found that really, that story the most interesting for me because it, it sort of brought it very close to what I remember from my family history. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to know mm -hmm. where you got this story from. From my great uncle, Mikhailo. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was his experience. And uh, he was in Kharkiv. He was in the Wehrmacht. 
he was part of these people who had been in Germany at the at the time of the Blitz, the Ostarbeiter who were then called up to serve in the Wehrmacht. And because they wanted the Soviets out, you know, Germany was was their most likely ally um, to help them regain their country. You know, I mean, <laughs> after after the Blitz, uh, you know, Stetsko, Yaroslav Stetsko and, and Bandera proclaimed that Ukraine was now a free and independent country and that we were going to help the Germans expel the, the Muscovites, you know. Um, and then not even two weeks later, they were all arrested. The Gestapo allowed them. They said, okay, let's, let's see what happens in, over the next two weeks. And then the leaders were all arrested and they said, no, now we're going to make a general government here in, um, in Western Ukraine. So, but Mikhailo's story is not that unique. He, he did return to Lutsk. He was on holiday. So I think the story, the, the short story in the book ends where he's back on the train heading home, right? And um, he did return to Lutsk and uh, he went to his fa father and he, I remember him telling me the story. He said he went to his father and he said, I'm going underground. And his father freaked out and he said, you know, you're going to get us all killed and you're deserting the German army. They will kill you. They will kill us and your brother and your sister. Um, and that was why the Nazis showed up at my grandmother's farm is because they were looking for Mikhailo and they decimated several people from the village in front of the church. Um, my grandmother's neighbor in Minneapolis, she was um, Luba Prehad, which begins the third story or the, the, the second story right after Mikhailos is then where there, the Germans have just shot all of these people in front of the church are now heading over to her farm. Um, so these events that are in those three stories about the partisans, I think it's partisan one, partisan two, and partisan three in the collection mm -hmm. are actually my grandmother and her two brothers. And those are based on true events. The third one with Kulka uh, is actually very much research about what happened in 1943 where Upa was going around and um, decimating Polish villages and Jewish neighborhoods and so on. And my uncle, my great uncle at the time was, I think maybe 10 or 11. He was snatched up by some UPA raiders and taken on these raids. And he had witnessed this and he refused to talk to me about it. He only told me that he had been there and I had to go and fill in the blanks. Um, about these things. So that was part of the research that I had to do outside of these anecdotes. Anytime that they were mm -hmm. unable to or unwilling to speak about what had happened, I had to go in and figure it out. And I told them, I warned them all. I said, you're not gonna be happy with what I found. <laughs> but I, I can't just leave half the story open, you know? And this is something that I, I continuously um, get from reviewers as well is that my my books are full of raw and grit and there's um i don't shy away from the brutality because in the end what i'm doing is um i'm trying to show that there is no good guy and bad guy in social and political upheaval there is no simple good guy 
and simple bad guy. Everybody is trying to do their best in the end. And the choices that they make, that's the question. Is it going to bring out the best in you or the worst from you? Yeah. Um, and that's what I love to explore with my characters. So given the fact that you've now kind of compiled these stories together, um, and especially when you've mentioned that, you know, your grandmothers did work on um, you know, the Hetman states and you're now looking at uh, the struggles of Ukrainians in World War II, do you think there's a place for your stories that can be used to kind of help counter uh, Russian propaganda that is out there about Ukraina and about, like, as Putin recently wrote, Ukrainians and Russians are basically one people. Do you think that there's a spot for your book to kind of help to counter that narrative? Absolutely. Again, I, you know, my, my experiences in growing up in the Ukrainian diaspora, um, my experiences growing up in the household that I did, in the community that I did, um, it's one of the reasons that I... I wanted to definitely meet my grandmother's promise and or to um, to do well on her promise or my promise to her to tell her story because um, my entire life I've had to argue that I'm not Russian I don't speak Russian I might understand it but I don't speak it um, that we are a separate entity, that we have our own traditions, our own cultures. And even in those regions, you know, I live in a mountain area of, of Austria and you go six kilometers to the left or to the right and it's a different culture and language, you know? So hmm. these, this individuality and this identity, this search for your identity has been, has made such a huge impression on my life and on my choices and the way that I write as well. Um, almost all of my stories have this kind of running theme of Heimat, homeland, you know, um, or, or figuring out who you are and where you belong, this belonging. I think what I really want to do in these two books, especially, is to position um, Ukraine's history, her role, her story uniquely on the mass market is to make these stories accessible to English-speaking people who have nothing to do with Ukrainians, for example, have heard about Ukraine in the news, have maybe know a Ukrainian, have seen a pisimka, you know, whatever, or nothing at all, or know only about an Eastern Front, yeah? Um, and I want them to understand who Ukraine was, what its role was um, in World War II, especially, so people will realize that, that um that we are our own individual character our own heritage and um and nation yeah what i really really don't like is when people are throwing these stories um of history into some drawer called the eastern front you know the czechoslovakians were czechoslovakians they had their own rebellions they had their own uprisings we had uh, hungary we had um Belarusia. we had um the Russians, I mean, of course, they have their stories as well. You know, Polish um, people have their own stories. It's not just one Eastern Front. It was a lot of people thrown into this mass um, chaos. But each one of them was fighting for their own individual right to exist as a nation and as a culture and as a people. And that's one of the reasons that I write these novels about this era is I, I really want to explore the persons, um, the persona, sorry, the moral dilemmas, um, and what the personal story is all about to 
throw these or to expose and reveal these characters and these political and social upheavals and watch what comes out. It's fantastic that we have some, uh, you know, that there is, you know, something on the mainstream market that can actually, you know, reveal the complexities of that, you know, what's known as the Eastern Front, um, because, you know, there was a lot going on behind there. And, you know, once the Cold War started, a lot of the information that was on the other side of the Berlin Wall, as you could say, fell into like secrecy and a lot of people didn't know about a lot of things in the west yeah. that coming out of the east so yeah. it's, it's great that we finally yeah. are able to you know or that you're able to bring yeah. out those stories into the forefront um i have a quote from your book that i just want to read just kind of to finish up for our uh last question and it's from uh, the woman at the gates and it's at the start when antonia is arguing with the dean and the dean mm -hmm. says youth fights for its ideals compulsively spurred by the rash belief that justice and freedom are won by making noise and exhibiting passions and then antonia thinks who could blame them antonia's sympathies were with the students the need for freedom was as natural as the need for air and water necessary for survival and that kind of resonated with me particularly that you know myself andre and the others on this podcast are of the younger generation do you think that there is a particularly special place for the youth in the promotion of Ukrainian culture and the fight for Ukrainian independence that's still going on? Absolutely. If they don't do it, who will? You know? I mean, yeah. my husband and I, we look at each other and we're thinking you know, everything that's going on with the pandemic and, and the governments and the story, oh God. Um, and we think, God, I am just so tired, you know? But then we look at the kids. We look at their, the 20 year olds, the, the ones who are, you know, coming out of university and I tell you, they bring hope, man. When I take a look at, uh, you know, my husband's kids and they're, they're all finished with university or studying, this is where, where I see the hope lies, you know. They're aware. They know uh, what it takes. Um, they understand um, that we need to make changes, that we need to make drastic changes in the world. And their, their world is so much smaller you know, with, with social media and um, the ability to cross over borders without having to even travel and the ability to meet people without having to travel, I, I, I really believe it has to rest in the hands of the youth because I don't know about you guys, but I feel like our previous generations have really screwed things up. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a lot of uh, conflict in the 20th century, so now's the time to kind of unfold, I guess. <laughs> well, thank you, Hersena, for partaking in this interview with us. I've greatly appreciated Nathan. I assume he's also appreciated. And I'm hoping everyone that's listening um, has enjoyed listening to our conversation and about your journey into becoming a journalist and looking into Ukraine's history as well. So thank you for coming on, and uh, we hope to see from you soon. Thank you, you guys. Thank you very much. And let me know how you like the books. <laughs> well, where can people find the books? Um, so they're available on all major digital platforms on Amazon, on Kobo, uh, Google, and I believe Apple Books. So it's an ebook and then it's available in audiobook. And I'm listening to the audiobook right now, which is crazy because I don't know if you guys know, but when a novelist has to read their manuscript approximately 12 times before the book comes out, right? So I've read it at least 12 times in the first half of this year. But I started listening to the audiobook and I am just, I'm, I'm, 
I can't stop listening. She's so good. The narrator was so good. And she had to pronounce all these Ukrainian words and names and everything. And, you know, I, I beg you, Ukrainians, please just give her a break. She's English. Okay. <laughs> but she does a pretty darn good job. In the news this week, political activist and former comedian Sirhi Pratula has announced that he is creating his own political party. Previous Holos Party candidate for Kiev Mayor, he announced that he is now in the process of creating his team on the local level in the various regions of Ukraine. On September 29, Ukraine remembered the Babanya massacre. Only after Ukraine regained its independence did the truth of what is considered the largest massacre of the war come to light. In 1941, shortly after occupying Kiev, the Nazis began rounding up Jews and marching them to Babanya, a ravine on the outskirts of the city. Over the course of two days, over 33,000 Jews were murdered on this site as part of Hitler's Holocaust of bullets. It is estimated that a further 100,000 people of many nationalities were murdered at the site. In 2016, the Ukrainian government announced that it would build a memorial center on the site. Ukraine has dismissed the remaining members of Naftohaz's supervisory board. After other independent members resigned earlier this month due to continued government interference, the company has now reverted to the control of the Ukrainian government. President Zelensky has been criticized by Ukraine's partners for interfering with Naftohaz and other large state-owned entities in an attempt to bring them under their control. During the previous administration, Ukraine had undertaken the corporatization of state-owned companies in order to improve their effectiveness and profitability. As a part of these reforms, the government was meant to limit its control over these companies and allow them to operate as independent entities. Hundreds of Ukrainians have marched through Kyiv demanding national and global leaders take more action to prevent global temperature rises due to climate change. Activists marched from Mikhailivska Square to Parliament, where they submitted a list of their demands to deputies. Ukraine is set to participate in the upcoming United Nations Climate Summit in Glasgow in November this year. Ukrainian boxer Alexander Osek has defeated the UK's Anthony Joshua in a stunning match at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in London. In front of over 70,000 spectators, Osek dominated all 12 rounds and won with a unanimous decision from the judges. The winner of the upcoming showdown between WBC champion Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder will face Osek in the fight to become the heavyweight boxing champion. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Report content. <laughs>